Welcome to Litigation Strategies, the podcast that discusses all things litigation, from filing a small claims lawsuit to closing arguments in a murder trial. We dive into handling a case from beginning to the end. Your co-hosts are Daniel Coble and myself, Joe Berry, former assistant solicitors for the Fifth Judicial Circuit and currently in private practice. We're pleased to have you with us, and now, this episode of Litigation Strategies. Welcome to Litigation Strategies. I'm Joe Berry, along with my co-host, Daniel Coble. We are very pleased to welcome our guest today, the Honorable Richard Gurgle of the United States District Court for the District of South Carolina. Judge Gurgle, welcome, and, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Privileged to be here. Thanks, Joseph. Well, I, I don't believe you need an introduction, but but I please allow me to briefly do that. Acknowledge that you're a proud Duke alum, for our listeners, if they didn't already know, as well as a native of Columbia, as are Daniel and I, proud Colombians as well. And after three decades in private practice, you're invested as a federal judge in 2010, have since presided over numerous notable cases, uh, including the trial of Dylan Roof, and as well as a landmark ruling involving a South Carolina same-sex marriage ban. Uh, of course, you're also an author with your book, Unexampled Courage, having received widespread acclaim, national book tour, even a PBS special. We are really, really honored to have you here today. And, and if we could, Your Honor, I'd love to start off not with the federal bench or your book, but your, your early legal career. If you could tell us a little bit about what shaped your career as a young attorney. Well, when we think about me being a young attorney, I'm talking to two young attorneys who I remember when each of you were born, okay? I remember you as infants. Your parents are close to me on both, both of your parents, on both sides of both of y'all. And so I remember very clearly y'all being born. So you're really making me feel very old that you're now lawyers conducting this blog, but, you know, handing the torch to the next generation, here we go. Um, I um, began practicing in 1979. I wanted to be a litigator. I wanted to fight the great cause. I went to law school because I wanted to make a difference. I'll be honest, I never thought about making money. I just didn't. It just wasn't one of those things that seemed to be a priority. I certainly was conscious of the fact that I had eventually had two children I had to educate and I had to put a roof over our, our home. We were blessed with, with more financial success than I ever really anticipated or sought. And it highlights the fact that if you work hard and care about your clients, everything else will work out. One way or the other, as long as you're, as a lawyer, that you practice with diligence and integrity, things work out and you're happy. I always was struck that lawyers who, um, seem to be highly motivated by the dollar as the primary starting point for any consideration or eventually very unhappy with the practice of law because you there's not enough money in the world to make people who only care about money happy. Some of the most successful firms in South Carolina have broken up. Some of the most wealthy lawyers I know fighting over money. So I really, I was told recently that this year's cl entering class at law schools had an increased application pool of 50% wow. this one year. And I asked several deans um, what accounted for that. And there apparently had been some effort to survey because they were they were not expecting uh, this type of surge of lawyering and of interest in lawyering. And some of it might be explainable by people putting off a year because of the pandemic, et cetera, but it really 
was far greater than that because they didn't have a huge drop off last year. So it was like, what explains it? And here, here were the predominant reasons people gave. Uh, number one, they wanted to make a difference. They wanted a, the total, the, their, their right, law license to be a tool for justice. And secondly, many people, males and females, talked about the influence of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm. Those were the two predominant factors. That makes me very encouraged, I, got, I must say, because it really harkens back to the day when many of my classmates went to law school because we wanted to make a difference. And I tell lawyers, I speak to a lot of young lawyers and lawyer groups, I say, and law students, I say, you know, you can make a difference no matter where you go, public service, big law, small practice, whatever. You, a law license is a license to do an immense amount of good. Mm. And, and making yourself, devoting a significant portion of what you do to bettering the, the world around you. It might be just in your individual cases, skillfully representing your clients who need you, and also in giving away your time for causes that are bigger than yourself. I think that is like the greatest tool for professional satisfaction. Um, I've had lawyers who I've appointed in cases where they get paid a penny I go to their websites and the case they got appointed on, they're highlighting, not the one in which they made money on. So when I began practicing, I, I genuinely, you know, was, was motivated by a desire to, to represent people who uh, were not, I was, did not want to represent Goliath. I wanted to represent David. And believe me, there are a lot more Davids out there to be, who need your representation than Goliath. And, and I, I basically devoted a great deal of my practice to, to things in which I didn't get compensated. That when you do really good work on behalf of clients who, through either the contingency pay system or, or other methods of compensation allow you to be paid, you get overpaid, frankly. And that is the freedom then to turn your time and energies to the greater good. So I really, I, I will just say, and I'm looking back now, 40 plus years, the one, the people who are still get up in the morning, excited about going to work, are those who feel like there's a cause bigger than themselves. Hmm. It, not to be flip, but it, it, it takes me back to one of my icons as a child, and that was, that was Matlock, Ben Matlock, and he had these clients who were accused of murder, and he would always figure out that they... <laughs> They weren't the ones, and he'd find the guy in the cross. Uh, unfortunately, those of my friends who do criminal defense work, those are few and far between in, in criminal cases. But it highlights the fact that, that you'll, you won't know which one is, unless you're extremely diligent about what you do. You know, I always like the line. I used to tell lawyers at my firm, the harder I work, the luckier I get is you find the little gem in the, buried in the, in the case because of diligence. And sometimes you, you, you find your theory, your approach, your strategy isn't, it isn't legally or factually valid, but you don't know that until you have run the course and done the work. So I, I, I don't think there's any substitute for, for diligence in law and, and being extremely hardworking. You guys got a great advantage over us. I had to go to the office to work. Basically, you know, my books were there, my files were there. I had children at home who probably would have been in my lap 
climbing over me if I was trying to work at home. Well, you know, the pandemic has taught us we can work remotely. And, and once you have kids, Daniel, I don't know your situation. I know Joseph now has his first child. It just completely reorients your life. And I, I don't think I ever missed a swim meet or a little league baseball game. I considered that stuff irreplaceable. I, you know, it wasn't going to happen again. They were going to grow up and go and, and leave the nest. And I, I you know, I, I found that being really committed to the family was another one of those things that was just really important for, for professional satisfaction. I remember one of my law clerks came to me after a year and she said tearfully, she said, you know, um, my boyfriend and I want to get married. He lives in another city. This is the greatest job I, I've ever had. And I, I'm just, um, I'm getting up a little years. I'm a little worried if we want multiple children that I can't really wait. And I said to her, I said, listen, get your personal life strength first. Everything else works itself out just fine. That mm. reminds me of, well, think about the business of law and it's family, but not family. And, and that's partners. I believe you had partners three decades uh, of a law yeah. practice for, for young attorneys who are either joining a firm or um, striking on their own, working with others. Any, any recommendations about how to manage law partnerships? Well, of course, when you go into a partnership, they're managing you. You're not really managing them, right? I mean, let's face it. Um, that's just for the dynamic. And I grew up, my parents were merchants. They were on their own bosses, probably basically because they wouldn't have been very good employees. They like run in the show. The girls were type A personalities from the get-go. And, and I, a couple years in, I started my own firm. It's a wonderful thing to do. So many young lawyers come to me and they say, oh, judge, it's just the economy's terrible. Nobody's hiring. Da, da, da. I can't get a job. And I say to them, you know, I might be wrong, but I thought they still let you hang a shingle. And the lawyers I know who have done that go to older lawyers who have more work than they can handle and say, listen, please let me, you know, I'm glad to take what you don't want to take. When they did good work, they got more work from that lawyer. And some of them ended up joining those law firms. I mean, they ended up joining those lawyers. Others, you know, continued independently. I remember one guy came to me and he said, you know, I, I can't leave my city because my wife's got this great job. And she really, frankly, supported me through law school. We just can't afford for me to go somewhere else. So I've got to be in this city. And I said, I told him the line about, oh, I didn't know they didn't let you do shing hang a shingle anymore. Well, after a few years, he, he told, I said, how are things going? And he said, well, I'm making more this year than my wife. You know, had this great job. And, uh, and she was then able to take off to have a child. I mean, it was just, you know, so solo practice is, uh, or small firm practice with you and a couple of your friends is really at a time, there was a time in which virtually everybody did that. That was just the way things worked. In Columbia, everybody went to the Barringer building in Columbia. Every young lawyer had his office in the Barringer building. God knows how they got any business. Because you know, someone would have to go by five other lawyers to get to your office. But they did it. They, they viewed themselves as entrepreneurs. They, they ran for the legislature or they uh, were engaged in activities and in their churches or synagogues, they did stuff to be visible and active in the community and they built practices and they had a lot of professional satisfaction. So I did, I, I started a firm. I had one other uh, partner and we 
you know, we built a practice. Sometimes partners come and go. They have different, they develop in different ways. They have different interests. That happens. I never had anybody leave that wasn't on an amicus, amical basis. We, you know, but I did have certain partners that were with me virtually my entire practice and who were great friends and taught me a lot about law. And hopefully I taught them a thing or two. Is, is there anything you miss about being in private practice? I can tell you, Joseph, you know, I, I've been out of this 11 years now, and I almost have forgotten my former life. You know, mm. it is so absorbing. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, sure. I, I, I miss the excitement of trial, but I'm there. I'm actually in the courtroom more than I was as a lawyer because, you know, you just don't try cases every day. So the, there are parts of, of law practice that I have that I do miss. You know, we're awfully isolated as, as judges, which is, you know, one of the things that is, I was always a very sociable person and I've tried to maintain my outreach, not to be isolated. You mentioned my book, I've been out speaking to lawyer groups, judicial groups across the country, as well as just general audiences. And because I think that's an important telling a story on the history of our court, a noble history of our court is a really important part of my mission. But, but I find a lot of satisfaction in what I do. I get, get up every morning and do the right thing. And, you know, I remember a couple of times colleagues would say to me, well, you know, you do that, you might get reversed. And I said, well, you know, last I checked, I've got lifetime. And, you know, I get a paycheck every month, you know, no matter even if they get, if, if my, my appellate courts don't agree, don't agree with me, which is really not that, com- that common that they don't. Uh, actually, a d- typical district judge makes about 99.9% of his or her decisions are on you know, sustained or never reviewed. And, you know, I, I really just try to do the right thing every day, uh, trying to marshal uh, the best arguments in the most diligent way possible to explain myself, why I'm doing it. And, um, you know, I can't say every instance I have found a path to do what I think is really the just result, just precedent, mandatory minimums or whatever get in the way. But I got to say those are really, I can count those on one hand. Mm. Well, I'm, I, Your Honor, I've recently started a solo practice, and I'm not at the point where my wife is going to quit her job. I Hopefully, I'll get there at some point. But you talked earlier about lawyers and happiness, and as well as judges being isolated. So a, a lot of lawyers nowadays talk about mental health and, you know, trying how the stress that can come with the job. So what would be your advice to young attorneys, as well as judges, when it comes to mental health and how to to stay in touch and to make sure that everything's going okay? Well, uh, mental health is, is every bit as important as physical health. They, in fact, there's plenty of data that they're very closely connected. And you gotta, you gotta have your, your life in order. And that's part of what I was talking about earlier. And that's the emotional side of your, of your life as well as the physical side of your life. And you've gotta maintain a lot of health. I will tell you, I have observed a lot of what might be described generally as post-traumatic stress disorder from the pandemic, that people who are used to being very sociable have been isolated in their homes. And, and I see a lot of, of, of uh, stress relating uh, to this. So I think this is, is a time we need to be really conscious of our emotional 
Now, I found, you know, I was home a year. You know, I basically ran the United States District Court from my dining room table. No one was probably happier with me leaving after a year than my wife who got her dining room table back. I was going to assume. (laughs) Yeah, she was thrilled. Um, But I, I thought it was important to get back and be with people. And initially, I was basically in the courthouse by myself, but, you know, people migrated back in. I'm trying to do as much court proceedings as possible. So, and I've had some lawyers, you know, say to me privately how difficult this year has been for them. A lot of them have lost parents or friends. I've been thinking some of these discussions about these athletes who have been very candid about their mental health have been really important for people to form and take away the stigma of illness as some type of uh, sign of weakness. Uh, As Joseph knows, I have a brother who's a psychiatrist. He tells me he is so busy, he doesn't know what to do. People who had pre-existing problems have worse problems. People with no history of problems have problems. And, you know, people come to lawyers for help. And sometimes people in the helping professions don't recognize they may have their own needs. So I think it's a really important discussion we all have. I think we've had bar committees for some years trying to help both in mental health and physical health. So you know, it's, I think it's really important that we keep our lives straight, both you know, taking good, healthy care of ourselves, eating well, maintaining good uh, health practices, as well as paying attention to our mental health. So it sounds like my, my three coffees in the morning is probably, I need to put some more water in the mix. I got to, I got to dial. That's probably, probably, I'm not sure, Joe, that's going to do you any good. You'd probably be just as hyper on one and a half. I tell you, I tell you. Well, I, I've got to ask for another piece of advice and it's on, it's on writing. And, and I recall before going to law school, you directed me to get strunk and white, which, which I did. I have. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not as creased as it probably should be. And when I, when I left the solicitor's office in, 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 in her private practice at Lewis Babcock, Keith Babcock, our senior partner, told me that my writing was a lot better when I was a law clerk than when I was a, after four plus years at the solicitor's office that I had slipped. And I'm diligently working to get back in the, in, as a better writer. But, but obviously, you know, for you, legal writing, what, what do you like to see from the bench? What what advice do you have? Uh, a, a topic I'd love to hear more about. Well, uh, it is easier to write a 20-page brief than a five-page brief. It is easier to, to say something in four paragraphs, harder to say it in one sentence. I used to tell lawyers in my firm, that they couldn't give the thesis of their case in an opening sentence to the jury as the trial began, they weren't ready to try the case. And so mastering your case is necessary for good writing. Good writing is a skill in itself, but if you haven't thought through what you're gonna say and how you need to say it, then writing is just, you know, just as mechanical as using a keyboard, I mean, it's, it's just it's just a tool. So you've got to get your head on straight. And I reading, I, I think writing is really important. You know, different, what I've come to realize is that judges have different work styles. And you come to know that if you practice regularly among them, that some things are more important than others. I'm not a really big fan of oral argument. And you might say, well, why is that? I said, well, because I think that this is a real analysis of fact and law is a very intensive experience and best 
in my experience, best done in a thoughtful, deliberate, careful way. And listening and talking is can often be just the opposite of that. So I don't routinely do oral argument on motions. It's basically a time management thing. You've got if you're spending time on that, then you're not spending time on other things. So it is a really big mistake in front of me not to be extremely careful and meticulous and thoughtful about your writing because I take it very seriously. I also had this very odd experience. Jeff Curry pointed this out to me right when I came on the bench. He said, you know, when I do oral argument, the lawyer who's losing will suddenly change the argument to some other argument that hasn't been briefed. And it's not like an appellate court where issues aren't preserved. They can just keep throwing things at you. And, and she, she found, and I, I found it to be true that you discipline lawyers to be more careful, uh, not let, having the lowest rung of person in the law firm write the brief and somebody just file it, that it's really not just a, the exercise, it's very important. So, you know, and sometimes lawyers will come to me and they'll say, you know, I know you got this 25 page limit, can we go to 50 or something? And I said, listen, y'all, y'all go to 50. I'm just quitting reading at 25, you know, because I really think there are not many issues. There are obviously some few in which I, I think a longer treatment is necessary. But by and large, the insecure lawyer throws everything at the wall, hoping something will stick. The really confident lawyer picks two or three of the strongest, most persuasive arguments, succinctly writes them and states a thesis up front argues the thesis and concludes with that, again, succinctly. Good writing is really important. And let me just say this, a lot of lawyers who work in high volume practices, like working in a solicitor's office, acquire terrible habits. And it's not because they're not working hard, they just have, they're so overworked, they don't have time to apply it to the skill of writing. And one of the pleasures of, of, of being in a practice where you have the time to do it is that you really get to hone that skill. I, I remember, Joseph, that a lawyer at a major defense firm told me that, that, that when, when that firm received complaints, some lawyers would write a 100-page complaint. Hmm. Sometimes that might be a strategic reason to do it. Mostly it is not. And Cam Lewis in your firm used to do like a two-page complaint. And it would be perfect. He didn't say more than he had to say. He said everything he had to say. Everybody knew when he said it that he that he knew what he was saying, and 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 so this defense lawyer was telling me that they found the two-page Cam Lewis complaint far more impressive, superior than the hundred-page um, babbling brook of a complaint that many other lawyers filed. Um, I, I will endeavor not to be a babbling brook. I, I, I'm I'm working on it. You know, you get thoughts, you want to communicate, but I. Uh, I, I love it. It's part of discipline, Joseph. It's just, it is. It you is. Know, you got. You got to. You know, nobody can absorb eight points. You got to get two or three, and you got to bang them hard. If there's one really good point, bang that drum from the beginning to the end. I love it. Well, we're very appreciative of your time. Before before we let you go and get back to your life, I got to ask. We. Uh, I, we, we haven't gone into unexampled courage. It's been spoken about so much. There's so, so much information online and out there, and it's just such a powerful story. I'm not going to get back into all that. I know you've, you've spoken about ad nauseum. Is there anything next? Is there another book or perhaps another book with 
with Dr. Gurgle, with your wife, uh, maybe a, a, a co-author coming back again. Uh, it's not, not for the first time. And any new projects? You know, people will ask Belinda, they'll say, what is Judge Gurgle working on now? And her response is, you all have to ask his second wife. You know, I have, I'm pretty full doing uh, talks on the book. We obviously got slowed down a bit uh, by the by the pandemic, but then we moved to Zoom for a lot of talks. I've spoken to, I don't know, a dozen law schools, uh, judicial groups, a lot of national meetings. I, I've got, I can't possibly respond positively to every invite. I, I, I'm the ideal speaker by the due to judicial ethics, I cannot accept an honorarium. Mm -hmm. So I am a cheap date, okay? And, and so that makes me a very attractive invite. And, and, you know, we, so I find that the time that years ago I spent researching and writing, I'm now telling the story, I'm continuing to tell this story, which I think is a really important story about, about the role of lawyers and judges in showing civic courage and showing engagement and showing they can make a difference by doing the right thing and using their legal skills to challenge injustice wherever it might emerge. Um, not worrying about um, being criticized or um, ridiculed by others. Those are really important lessons of unexampled courage. And, and the, the heroes in that book, and there are many, it's not just Judge Waring or Harry Truman or Thurgood Marshall, it's uh, people we've never heard of before who stepped forward and took the first bullet for, for what they believe to be a cause of justice. And history has judged them very positively as a result. But so I, I'm, I'm spending a fair amount of time continuing to share uh, that story. You mentioned the PBS special. I spent a fair amount of time helping these outstanding, the outstanding director, uh, Jamila Efron, who's just a great filmmaker. Uh, he was extraordinarily diligent in doing this in this documentary. And, and then of recent, I have been very involved for nearly three decades in an organization called the Jewish Historical Society of South Carolina, based at the College of Charleston. It's had a lot of really notable events and music, um, major exhibits mounted around the United States and so forth. And, and we were concerned that with the pandemic, our organization couldn't meet. A major part of the, of the organization was semi-annual meetings where people heard great speakers and um, gathered together. Well, you can't gather together now. So Robert Rosen, my friend and a fellow historian, began a, a webcast. We thought once a month, we thought, hey, this is going to be easy. We just get the computer and blah, blab for a while. Y'all learned that that's not quite as easy as it might seem. And, and we have been doing now for a year webcasts. We were hoping for maybe 35 to 50 people gathering on a Sunday at 5.30 once a month just to hold the, the embers of the organization, burn, keep them burning during the pandemic. But we have hundreds of people join us and, it's, and we've dealt with all types of fascinating subjects. And I've learned a great deal. I thought I would be able to do sort of this in my sleep. And because I have written with my wife a book on the history of the Jews of Columbia, I've written extensively on South Carolina Jewish history. But what you realize is when you start digging, you know nothing. And, and we spent, Robert and I spent an enormous amount of time learning fascinating stories and sharing those stories we've done 
Jews in the Civil War, Jews in Reconstruction. We did a, a two-part, two different sessions on South Carolina Jews and the law. Fascinating. And, and we're done, we're now doing Jews in medicine, South Carolina Jews in medicine. Um, and our next webcast, we have two South Carolina Jewish natives who won the Nobel Prize in medicine. One from King Street, grew up with uh, Joseph Goldstein, who grew up with, with your grandmother in King Street, the King Street Jewish community, and David Furscott in Charleston, Orangeburg. Both of our winners won the Nobel Prize in medicine. And we've had also Jewish physicians as early, among the earliest physicians in South Carolina. It's a very interesting story. In between 1920s and 1960s, there were Jewish quotas. We got into that, including at the Medical College of South Carolina to their embarrassment. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just, every day, I'm learning something new from that. So I'm spending far more time than I anticipated, as you guys have learned, doing a, a blog, um, getting ready and making it look effortless. You know, don't let everyone see you sweat. Act like it's just casual. You know all this stuff when, in fact, you would spend hours preparing does that sound like law practice? And, and, and so one of the stories we're going to tell at our next webcast in November, October, there's a, a Southern Jewish Historical Society meeting uh, that will be on Zoom, but we'll do it in November. There's a fascinating story of four Jewish physicians who uh, were, had low draft numbers. The two were graduates of Harvard Medical School, two from Columbia. They were friends that had low draft numbers, and someone tipped them off that if they, if they applied to the NIH for a fellowship, research fellowship, that would count as their military service. So these four guys, including Joseph Goldstein of King Street, applied and were admitted to this program. And all four of these Vietnam veteran avoiders, they call them Yellow Berets, <laughs> won, the no, won the Nobel Prize in Medicine. And Ray Greenberg, the former president of the Medical University, has written a book on them. And Ray's going to tell us the story of these four Jewish physicians who won the Nobel Prize. So it's just, you know, I never heard that story. I imagine you guys have never heard that story. And, and you know, so I keep learning, just like y'all are doing this program periodically. You're learning stuff you never do. We will need to get that link and, and share it. And we'll look forward to, to hearing that. And, and, and Your Honor, thank you again so much for your time joining us. I know we could continue. I got so many more questions that, that were not my top questions that I, that I could have and would have asked. But, but you, uh, what you learned was you went for the, the, the you went for the home run. Those other ones, you know, another day, another day for those. That's right. The do's and don'ts. We'll deal with that later. Yeah. Your Honor, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Y'all be safe. Take care. Thank you, Your Honor. We appreciate it.